Cope uh, is constantly on the precipice of jumping into a fight with someone. Every every interaction in this book he has with someone who is not in his group is, and then we all had to hold Cope back to keep him from starting yes. to punch this man he was talking to. <laughs> and again, this is a professor at a prestigious a university. <laughs> a paleontology. He's a dino and he's ready man. To throw, yeah, and he's ready to throw fists at, the, at any time anyone pisses him off. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Reginald's Podcast. I am Dominic Noble. You may remember me from such hit shows as Lost in Adaptation or Nerdy British Teens Gone Wild. Now, I didn't necessarily want to be the one millionth YouTuber to start a podcast, but my boy Reginald, my sweet boy, he just wouldn't stop asking. The little dude just, he wanted to start a book club so badly, and eventually I just couldn't keep saying no to that, that sad little face. But... After all that, after all that whining and complaining, Reginald isn't bloody here right now. You see, he, he couldn't <laughs> even make it to the pilot of his own show because, ironically, considering the book that's under discussion today, he's away on a criminally dangerous school field trip in an active war zone. So what, what are the odds? But uh, fortunately, the day was saved because I managed to sweet talk someone into filling in for him just this one time. So mm. it's my great pleasure to introduce to you my special guest, OSP's bad boy Indigo, a.k.a. Danny from Rolling With Difficulty, a.k.a. the host of Movie Struck, a.k.a. the editor of Lost in Adaptation, a.k.a. Sophia Ricciardi. <laughs> Hello, thanks for having me and all of my a.k.a.'s. <laughs> you got, I mean, you, you get around professionally. <laughs> like, yeah, that is the uh, life of the freelancer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, hopefully people will recognize you from your many, many podcasts and shows and uh, involvements in great projects. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled to be here on another podcast. Uh... <laughs> yep. 50th podcast you've been involved in. Every single one better than the last. <laughs> Never get tired yeah, of them. Well, <laughs> that's why I was, I, I really wanted you to be my first guest because I was like, okay, well, I know someone who I already work with and who has worked on a trillion podcasts. So there's anyone who's going to be able to nurse, <laughs> you know, nurse me through this first pilot episode will be her. I know. I've never not been the host before. This is really fun for me. I feel like there's no pressure because usually at this point I've got pages of notes that I'm trying to flip through. And right now I'm just like, nah, man, I'm here to talk about a book I like and hang out with my boss. It's going to be fun. It is more relaxing. <laughs> yeah. No, you're a very good podcast conductor, though. I, I noticed when you were when I guested on the OS pod, uh, you had these sort of off-screen hand gestures sorted out for reminding them when to move on to the yes. next part and everything. So you're like a good conductor. <laughs> Yes, to kind of show how the sausage is made, so to speak, we have a series of off-screen signals that I do use to cue red and blue to move on whenever I sense that a, another sonic rant is coming along. <laughs> it's smart, it worked, it was awesome, it was a very efficient podcast, but uh, yeah, we are here today to talk about your choice of book, which was Dragon's Teeth by Michael Crichton. Uh, just a bit of backstory, this was written in 1974 originally, but it wasn't published mm -hmm. until 2017, so it was the third novel that was posthumously published by the Crichton mm -hmm. estate. I, I couldn't find out why it wasn't published originally. I'm assuming that they just were, you know, uh, publishers weren't interested or Crichton decided this wasn't the direction he necessarily wanted to go at this point in his career. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I, I was reading the post word by, I think it's his wife, Sherry, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it didn't say why it wasn't published necessarily, just that it was one of those projects that he jumped onto and I guess never quite made it to the complete released version, but I'm very happy that it was posthumously uh, released because I enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, I'm a big Crichton fan, so <laughs> I've been working my way through all of his books. 
<laughs> nice. Well, that was going to be my first question is, uh, what does this book mean to you? So this is... Uh, uh, so you've read all these other books as well? Read most of them. Uh, all, the, all the ones that, pe- you know, Crichton's famous for Jurassic Park, and maybe if you're a bit more of a sci-fi nerd, the Andromeda strain. But he has a lot of other works, and they span a couple different genres. Uh, folks also know him from, like, Westworld and things. A lot of his movies and uh, movies books have been adapted into movies and TV shows. Uh, yeah. But I always really like his writing because he has a very scientific approach to things. And you can really tell just how interested he is in the different topics and wider scientific or paleontological. That's the word, right? Uh, <laughs> topics that case, he's covering. Yeah. yeah. And, and some of I think some of his books do better jobs at others than others at really letting that like love of learning come across and like interest in a topic come across in the writing. And Dragon Teeth, I think, is one of the ones where you can really tell just how much different things were kind of grabbing his attention as he was writing mm-hmm. it. It's, you know, the story between these two uh, <laughs> competing paleontologists, as we'll learn in a little bit, and oh, yeah. uh, just the the atmosphere of the American West and uh, all these different things that I, I don't know, it's kind of fun to get into the mind of someone who has clearly got so many interests. It's the same thing as, you know, when you when you are talking to someone and they're talking about something they love, it's fascinating. That's the conceit behind movie struck. Like, it, I love that uh, experience. And I think you get that a lot when you're reading Crichton's writing and particularly in Dragon Teeth. It, no, he's an, uh, such an enthusiastic, like not just enthusiastic for his writing, but you're right, you, you pick up on his love for the subjects that he's writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like a childlike enthusiasm for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's the first of his novels that I've read, because I've read Jurassic Park and The Indomitus Strainer, and I've read the synopses of a few others. So it's the, this, is, mm-hmm. this was a bit of an outlier for me with my experience with Crichton, because it's the first novel that wasn't centered around, don't do it, humanity, it's going <laughs> to fuck us all, you know? Because like, yeah. Indomitus Strain was like, don't fuck with space viruses. Well, you know, careful, because we don't know what's coming from outer space virus-wise. Jurassic Park was don't make giant lizards, obviously. Don't, yes, don't fuck with nature. We've had don't fuck with nanobots. That, you know, yes, science pray. we don't understand. Yep. <laughs> uh, there was sphere, don't fuck with a, a mysterious orb you find at the bottom of the ocean. I think that one maybe... Uh, it's more of a given, I, I would have thought. More of a given, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but this one wasn't like that at all, because it was more like, yeah. it's just this guy's journey through what I didn't realize at first was actual historical events. It's a... It's a fictional character who's hanging out with basically every significant person of note from... Oh, I didn't write down when the book was set. It's like 1880? 1890? Yes, it is. 1870 something. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a time period where the east side of America was considered quite civilized, but the the Mm -hmm. west was still a wild west. There was a lot of lawlessness going on. Supposedly so, and uh, yeah, this this wants. Well, let me tell you about the main character. The main character is a uh, sort of a yuppie Yale student uh, by the name of William Johnson. He's kind of this spoilt brat of a teenager who's kind of coasting through life. He sinks someone's yacht just because he can't. He wanted to sail mm-hmm. it, but couldn't be bothered learning to sail. <laughs> like he almost he's almost been kicked out of school a bunch of times, but his father's ridiculously rich and ridiculously well connected. Like he knows the senators of Philadelphia and stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this this kid is sort of coasting through life and he uh, he eventually gets into a dick measuring contest with another student and ends up making a bet that he's going to travel to the Wild West with this professor, uh, Professor Marsh, who's a paleontologist, mm-hmm. and go on this highly dangerous field trip to go and dig up some dinosaur bones. Got to try that. Why was I talking about this character? Was I, what was the... What was I saying a second before I just started introducing him? Well, he's the, the fictional kind of inserted character right, to kind yes, of tie so yes. this narrative together. 
Thank you. Yes. So yes, there's one <laughs> fictional guy, but then he's going to hang out with all these people who were real historical figures, which I didn't realize at first that they were historical mm-hmm. figures because of just how negatively they were being portrayed in this <laughs> right. book. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, they were actually like that. These yeah. paleontologists, these giants of their field, these historical you know, heroes were fucking assholes. <laughs> There's a certain kind of like pettiness that you only get from true, like highly academic rivalries. And the part of the book that you get a lot in the beginning that I really love is is that petty rivalry between these two paleontologists. You know, they're both top of their field. They're both deeply invested in, um, you know, the st- very early study of dinosaurs. This is sort of before I, I would say most people would say that dinosaurs existed and its paleontology is accepted as a field of study. This is before that was really a common held belief. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was certainly contested because <laughs> the beginning of the book they reference how everyone's like, "Oh, that Darwin guy. I wish he'd shut yeah. up." Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Evolution was still kind of a hot top, a hotly debated topic more so than it is uh, today. And well, it's most well, places it really shouldn't be today, but let's, let's <laughs> more not than go it there just be. now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so he, this this teenager, um, Johnson, he, he goes and sort of, because he's now got, he made a bet with his students saying, I'll bet you $1,000 that I'll go to the Wild West and go on this, this archaeological dig. And uh, so he goes and he begs uh, Professor Marsh to join his expedition. And he, he almost doesn't get in because this guy mm-hmm. is a bit of a fucking weirdo. He's like yeah. this incredibly paranoid, incredibly aggressive, grumpy man who... Only lets him come along because he hasn't been able to find a photographer yet. And, this, and you know, Johnson's like, oh, I'm a photographer. Yeah, I, I know how to do the photographs. And, <laughs> like, the, you also find out that this Marsh is deeply, intensely paranoid about this other guy, Professor Cope, who historically was his main rival. These Professor Cope and Professor Marsh worked for different universities and they were constantly trying to outdo each other and constantly just, like obsessed with each other they were just always slagging each other off on in the in the papers they were writing you know uh, articles about how the other one sucks they were trying to prove the other one had falsified research it was just a lifelong battle between these two guys and like again i i thought this was kind of cheesy writing until i found out this actually happened it was that cartoonishly (laughs) stupid just how much these two hated each other they were really going out there's a little post word in the Post word, afterword in the book. Uh, words are fun. Like and I totally know how to say them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where they go into a little bit about like how the real uh, Walsh and Cope actually continued in their lives and ended them, uh, and they were bitter rivals to the very end. And so it's a, uh, it's a, it's very genuine <laughs> that, that they are at each other's throats in that way in the beginning of the book. In Crichton's postword, because uh, I think it was like there was a, po- a, a postword from Crichton. There was a, once Crichton had passed away, there was a postscript from Crichton's wife, and then there was a mm-hmm. postscript about Crichton's wife. It was like just a long. It was like more endings than Lord of the Rings when it came to the postscripts in this. Yeah, one. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but like, yeah, it's like you couldn't, have, you really couldn't have made this stuff up. Just how much these no. two were professionally hate each other, personally hate each other, and went out of the way to sabotage each other. But yeah, so that's like the first thing that Johnson learns when he throws his lot in with Marsh is that like, it's, it's really funny the way that Marsh tries to talk to him about Cope because it's like 19th century uh, smack talk. It's like, oh, he has the body, he has incredibly bad body odor and he killed his father, you know, and he, uh, yes. he, he does this, <laughs> kills animals and uh, tell the person, no, no, no. So, oh, they also took the time to throw shade on, like, old-fashioned photographers, like, in the narrative. It was like, oh, yes, back in the day, photographers were considered kind of scummy people, not smart enough to do anything else. So I was like, wow, that was a job of a drive-by against photographers. 
Yeah. Yeah. I do also like with the photography, though, because I keep wanting to call him Jonathan. That's the main character's name. He, John, but it's Johnson. It's not Jonathan. See, that's William Johnson. William Johnson. But uh, he doesn't know photography before joining the expedition. That's just what he says he does to get in. And you get to learn a little bit about his character of this fictional guy because he does actually go the extra steps to learn the art of photography. And there's a little bit about how he kind of finds himself enjoying it. And you get your first inkling that like maybe this guy is because he starts out, you're like, ah, it's fucking rich kid. (laughs) This this Philadelphia scumbag. I should know. City of brotherly love. But uh, (laughs) but we get to see that inkling that he's going to change later on. He's going to be changed by all these awful people he's going to encounter. Yeah, because he puts the work in, he does. He takes like mm-hmm. several months worth of photography yeah. classes so he can blag his way onto this expedition, which, you know, mm-hmm. fair plays, you know. But like, he doesn't end up making it far into the expedition because no. Paranoid Professor Marsh is taking like six different trains to diff- six different states on the way to the West to throw off people like supposedly Cope's minions because he's convinced that Cope is following him and trying to get the jump on him and this amazing like new site where all these dinosaur bones are just waiting to be discovered. And he gets really suspicious of Johnson because Johnson's just like, wait, so who's Cope? I'm like, wait, well, why did you say Cope? You know, so he's... Right. The paranoia gets to the point where he actually leaves Johnson behind at a train station. Like they, they stop for the night in a hotel and he has the entire expedition leave him behind. And it's, so Johnson's left, like, dangling in the wind. And then, like, five minutes later, Cope does, in fact, show up because he was, in fact, following him. And, like, Cope uh, immediately recruits him onto his, into his posse. And while he does have his issues, he is, like, infinitely less insane. Like, he's not not insane, but he's mm-hmm. way more reasonable than Marsh. You know? Yeah, he has more street smarts than Marsh does. Like, Marsh, Marsh is making a lot of accommodations with connections and stuff. He's taking, like, fine ways of travel. And Cope is kind of more like, I've built up this band of trusted accompaniment, and I know what I'm doing, and I know how to make sure that we get where we're going and make some hot, tough calls along the way. But he's got this good nature about him that makes you think maybe he's not insane. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but he has, he has his moments, and he does yeah. ultimately value the, li- the the bones that they find over the lives of his students under his care, which is a bit of a fucked mm-hmm. up thing. But, yeah. like, I I thought when they first introduced him, he seemed so much calmer than Marsh, that we were going to have, like, a Pride and Prejudice, Wickham and Mr. Darcy situation, mm. where what, the one that seemed like the asshole was actually the nice one the whole time he was just an asshole with a good heart. But no, no, they were just both assholes. Like, there's no redemption for Marsh at the end of this. Yeah, kind Spoiler. of in the way that Crichton is always trying to warn people about the dangers of science going too far. I think the reason that he may have latched onto these two professors and their rivalry is like, you can't get... It's a similar idea of like, you can't get too caught up in your own little academic rivalry at the end of the day. It's risking the lives of everyone around him. That was the interpretation I got. But I also, when I read this the first time, kept expecting Marsh to show up and be like, oh, it was the good guy all along. Because uh, yeah. that's the kind of fake out you expect. But no, they were, they're just rivals. They like, really, yeah, they're just to the excess kind of, of all else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Marsh is definitely the worst of the two, at least in this story. Um, mm-hmm. I know, I like, but yeah, I think you're right in that. That's, that's the don't do it that Michael Crichton was keen on. Because like, in his postscript, he does make a point of saying that both men died young died penniless and exhausted because they put all their lives into this stupid rivalry and mm-hmm. it just ate them up inside and they died miserable so that could well be the lesson um i assumed it was just like a coming of age story for mr johnson but yeah, yeah a little uh, column a little column b <laughs> yeah that makes sense now that johnson is 
in Cope's camp, they do eventually make it to this this wild land of uh, dinosaur bones that are just like falling out of the cliff by the sounds of things. Like, I I don't know that's historically accurate, and we just don't have that anymore because all these assholes came and grabbed the bones, or if he was exaggerating just how little digging was involved in finding these bones. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's a it's not that inaccurate. Um, there's a lot of places out west in America. They specifically mentioned the Badlands, which uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Badlands National Park, but you, you get you're kind of looking at the cliffs there and how exposed the rock formations are. You can see how you would just look at them and be like, oh, that's bones in there. Um, mm-hmm. But there are still locations in the U.S. today where you can go uh, for excavation sites and dig for bones. And it's maybe wow. not, uh, I don't know if it's quite as, if you look at the rock wall, there's some dinosaurs <laughs> as it's made out to be in the uh, first arrival of, of this squadron. Uh, in the novel, but definitely the location and the uh, amount of bones present makes sense for yeah. what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, they they don't get there very easily because they have to contend mm-hmm. with... There's issues with uh, the Sioux Nations, which they're referred to as Indians all the way through the book because that was the word at the time, and there's some mm-hmm. contention these days about what is, you know, what is the, the best word to use uh, for you know Native Americans, I'm putting a stick with Native Americans because that's that's at the yeah, moment, to my understanding, the least offensive feels right. in terms. Uh, but yes, they just they they yeah, this this book ha- the word Indian comes up in this book a lot, but you mm-hmm. know that was the terminology of the day. But yes, yeah, so they they have trouble because like the the army is still currently at war with the the local Sioux Nation uh, at this point, and the, the West is still sort of contested. You know, with the remainder mm. of the Native Americans who are just like, hey, maybe stop taking everything we own and genociding us all and whatnot. Yeah. Right, uh, that'd so be they, great. <laughs> would, it would have been nice, but... Uh, so the, half their problem comes from, from, you know, attacks from the Native Americans, uh, and the other half actually come from the army, who just rock up with, like, drunken captains and stuff who assume that they're, they're running guns to the Sioux and mm-hmm. uh, try to burn down their wagons and shoot at them. So, you know... It's it's like a bit of column, bit of column A, a bit of column B with who's who's the greatest threat to them, their own side or the Sioux nations, uh, and they have uh, they do they do make it there with the help of a Native American uh, tracker who's agreed to be their guide, and they uncover all these these amazing bones, including the titular dragon's teeth, which are apparently Stegosaurus teeth. They decide on the way back. Now I was assuming it was T Rex because that's the closest thing. I think to a they dragon, landed on like but... Brontosaurus, maybe. Was it Brontosaurus? Because I okay. Because I made a note saying Stegosaurus the, like, actually had a really small mouth, so that those teeth would not have been that impressive. So Brontosaurus makes more sense. Yeah, I think it was because they the big deal with the teeth because they don't find any other bones from this particular dinosaur at this time. And I think Brontosaurus might also have been discovered to be part of a different skeleton. But I don't. I'm not up to date enough on my paleontology to be able to call out this book on any particular changes in dinosaur nomenclature. And that field is changing constantly. I'm not trying to get my own Professor Walsh or Cope to go here. Um, but no, I think the part of the big reason that this discovery was so notable to Cope and uh, not Jonathan <laughs> Johnson, uh, uh, everyone on the oh, expedition sorry, yeah. with Cope's team, yeah, yeah. Uh, is that this was just a dinosaur on a scale that they had not uncovered previously. Um, sure. Just sheer size, uh, which is that sense of awe is what leads to getting the nickname Dragon Teeth, because of course they're not. It's an herbivore. They're not sharp teeth. It's not like pointy little dragon fangs or anything. It's just emblematic of just how massive this creature would have had to be. 
That, see, that makes so much more sense, because I misread it as Stegosaurus, and I was just like, why are they making a big deal about these teeth? The Stegosaurus's head was the smallest <laughs> part of it. Like, the teeth would have been tiny. Yeah, but, No, that deep. makes so much more sense. Yeah. But then that's when, like, I mean, this has not been the safest field trip uh, in all of history to this point, but this is where things get really fucked up, because uh, they, like, several students are killed. Like, first of all, there's an attack. Like, Marsh full-on... Like, they, the Mosh turns up with his group of students, and they, they full-on, like, launch an assault on the camp at night and try to steal a bunch of the bones, and there's a shootout. Like, Cope gets Marsh in his sights, and at the last minute decides not to shoot him, but they're still firing guns everywhere. So this is, mm -hmm. again, neither of these guys are going to win Professor of the Year when it comes to child endangerment. <laughs> they have a very low rate, my professor score. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if Yelp existed, neither of these two would be rehired. <laughs> that's pretty insane. But then, like, even worse, like, they start carting these bones back, and there's a full-on uh, Sioux raid, and, like, half Cope's students are killed. Mm -hmm. Despite this, he sends two, like, three of them back to try to retrieve the other half of the boxes that they, of these, you know, dinosaur fossils that they keep referring to as bones, but I guess that was just for... Because, like, fossils aren't necessarily bones because the bones have long disappeared. It's just rock on rock. Uh, but they... Yeah. Yeah. They... <laughs> I think for you know for for dramatic purposes they call them bones all the way through this, but uh, he still he sends Johnson and a few other people back to get them, who, most of whom are promptly killed by the Native mm -hmm. Americans. The guide, what was his name? Uh, something Wind. Uh, uh, I local, think the, Little uh, Wind. Little Wind, thank you. Yes. So yeah. the local guide sort of changes side, changes back, gets mortally wounded, manages to get Johnson to safety before dying, and Johnson rocks up in Deadwood. Deadwood. The, the famous town from the show of the same name. Again, I didn't realize it was an actual historical place. This was, I think, the moment where I was like, wait, is this, is this real? Because I remember Deadwood <laughs> from, the, from the TV show, so then I started mm -hmm. looking and I was like, wait, all of this is real, good lord. So my, <laughs> my American history was a bit sketchy, so that's why I missed it all. Yeah, this is where the Western of it all really starts to become, like, crystallized. Because yeah. up till now, you're like, okay, paleontology thriller, he's going to be all about these professors, and, like, they're not in this for a while now. Uh, we're getting fully into the part where uh, Johnson just lives out the plot of every mm -hmm. uh, spaghetti Western you've ever seen over the course of yeah. a couple months. Yes, because he meets, because he runs into Wiley Earp, like the cowboy yeah. of the era. And um, it's it's also, it's the start of the book that I sort of mentally dubbed, like, the unluckiest bastard in all the West. Because <laughs> yeah. this poor kid, this teenager, cannot catch a break. Johnson's like, he's... no good, very bad day for, like, the rest of the book. <laughs> Yeah, because like the first of all, he gets stranded in Deadwood because he immediately gets his wallet nicked. Mm -hmm. So he's stuck there with these boxes. Um, he's got no money to pay for the stagecoach. He can't get himself back because this road is so lawless. Like fifty percent of the stagecoaches aren't making it back. It's a town full of like these hard knuckled miners who are eking out a meager living and still seem to be enjoying themselves there. And it's just like people are getting shot in the street. Mm -hmm. There's like a marshal who doesn't do anything, and there's a judge who doesn't really do anything. And he's, so he's got no way of making money. He's, he's stuck there. He keeps getting opportunities to leave and not quite making it. Because, like, at one point the army passes through, but he gets locked in jail as witness protection overnight, so he can't leave with them. And, like, mm -hmm. everything, everything that can go wrong for this poor kid keeps going wrong. <laughs> like, like, uh, and he eventually, he, he takes up, because uh, he's still got his photography equipment. I didn't realize mm -hmm. he even had that with him until this point. And he yeah. becomes the town's photographer and starts making like a meager living doing that. But the problem is no one believes that his boxes are full of, of fossils. They think it's full of gold of or jewels or something, you know? 
Yeah, because why would a guy be walking around with crates full of bones? Yeah. Who does that? <laughs> so, but for Johnson, it's become like a point of pride in that, like, I have seen people die for these fossils. I am getting them home. This is my mission mm-hmm. now. So he's protecting them as if they're, in, uh, they're worth something. So everyone believes they're worth something. So, like, uh, there's a, what, like a gunslinger, like a highwayman, mm-hmm. who, first of all, he catches, like, one of his, he accidentally takes a photograph of one of his friends committing a murder. So he gets him in his bad books there. Uh, then, uh, and I, I don't think this this Bill character. I don't think he was a historical figure, but he seems to be based on like a car- like an early serialized cartoon show that was actually back in the Wild West, like a comic book character, from what I can see. Oh, really? So like they sort of borrowed from looks of things. He borrowed like a fictional character to put in this. Yeah, he's sort of filling the. He's kind of just like, and if you're picturing in your head, if you've ever seen any sort of like Western. Uh, style cartoon or movie it, it, this is you know the outlaw the, the bandit uh, character yeah, this is um, the I basically saw him as the Biff character from Back to the Future 3 when yeah he was, like, basically a Buchanan Biff or whatever <laughs> more or less so, yeah, so just by happenstance, Wiley Earp, the hero of the Old West, is passing through town. So Johnson sort of makes friends with him and tries to hire him to protect him. But then he can't keep hiring him every night. Plus, Earp keeps finding alternative ways to stop them from robbing him. Like, he goes and plays poker with them all night just to keep them distracted, <laughs> but doesn't bother telling Johnson. So Johnson's, like, shitting his pants in bed all night <laughs> with his guns. Uh, and then, like, eventually these these two law like, this, this wild Bill guy breaks into the... Uh, into his room and he Johnson ends up shooting his friend so he's then gunning for him he has to have a standoff with this guy in the street and this like I just feel so bad for this poor teenager because everything is going wrong for him every time everything goes wrong for him and yet somehow he still manages to pull through it every single time Mm -hmm. (laughs) he gets very very lucky uh, and then very very unlucky very quickly (laughs) yeah but he eventually like he manages to talk up Wally Earp into protecting him on his way home uh, mm-hmm. There's a girl involved who I think I, I forgot to write down her name, but I think she would, she must have been another real life character because she was far too specific to not be. Like he thought she was a a call girl, and then it turned out she was working for the outlaw. But then it, she decided to work with him. They make out, a, you know, they smooch a bit at the end. But then like someone turns up and is like, oh, this is this is actually like a a politician. Like she's a or a lobbyist, and like ah, oh, and I was like, that's far far too specific for her to not be. A yeah, real person, right? she goes by Emily throughout most of the book, and then at the very end, before she and Johnson part ways, someone calls her Miranda Latham. Um, Let's look her up. I'm trying to see if. Yeah, it just describes her as a lobbyist for the railroads in Washington. I'm not familiar with her, but it does feel like that has to be like a real historical figure. Yeah. Presumably, uh, historically, too she specific. <laughs> yeah, she. So she apparently just likes slumming it in the Wild West and going on adventures under assumed identity but mm-hmm. she sort of ditches him towards the end and pretends like he's the one doing it i wasn't quite sure why she was gaslighting him like that i was like oh you're you're rejecting me and it's like all he said was i don't want to kiss in public i'm embarrassed <laughs> yeah. yeah she really does a heel turn on him uh he like starts to get a little suspicious because she seems too familiar with like the fashions of East, the eastern united states and she's like oh yeah. you know i'm just i'm just interested in the latest fashions and then suddenly it, it all just goes sour but it, yeah but she wasn't like she was a spy for marsh or anything no. she was just literally just off she was just passing through his story while doing her own thing which was fascinating yeah but 
But yeah, so the guy manages to make it back only for Marsh to sort of turn up and like he's he's already promised Wiley Earp half the bones, which Jonathan presumably well he thought that Wiley Earp thought that it was gold, but it's like man, he's gonna be so disappointed when it turns out to be fossils. But it turns out no. Earp did in fact know all along that it was bones. He was just planning to sell them to Marsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, Wiley Earp's got one last trick up his sleeve, so he ha- he gives Johnson enough time to switch out the bones with fakes and then barter up the price. So he gets like $1,000, which I think yeah. it, for these bones, and it's like in, in old money times, that's got to be something like $100,000. It's like a ridiculous amount of money. That's a pretty good payday for some bones yeah. that aren't even real bones. Exactly. And he, so, so this kid's come back and like he's taken a scar at this point. Like he got hit in the face with a tomahawk. He's got like <laughs> bullet injuries. He's taken an arrow through the knee, but he's still yes. an adventurer somehow. Of course. Uh, so he comes back and he goes and sees his parents and stuff who thought he was dead. Like he gets locked up at one point because he was like, he, he sends a telegram home to his father. It's like, hey, dad, can you send me some money? And his father's like, you've been dead for months. So no. So he gets locked <laughs> up for impersonating himself. He has to get a bribe over. And he's like, remember my nickname, father? So his father's like, oh shit, my son is alive. He gets him out of jail. Meanwhile, his girl's friend's been trying to sell off his bones but can't because they're fucking bones, you know? So it's like, ah, yep. oh, every... Like I said, it was, for some, he breaks a mirror or something and he just has the worst fucking week or, like, six months or whatever getting home. Mm-hmm. But he finally does. He gets to reconnect with his father. He comes back this cool, sort of scarred, streetwise adventurer and scares the shit out of his, his school bully. He gets to, like, Marsh... He gets to stand up to Marsh at the end and gets, mm-hmm. you know, he gets his heroic... Sort of, he's a, he's a different person now. He's no longer going to be bullied by him. And Marsh is like, you fool. But it, it did occur to me at that point, like, Marsh is a professor at Yale. Yes. Right? So he's a professor, and he's going back to university there. So, like, how awkward is this going to be when they pass in the corridor? I was like, hey, remember when you tried to kill me, asshole? <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I remember. Weird. Do you remember when you scammed me out of $1,000? <laughs> yeah, I guess if, I hope he probably isn't planning on taking any paleontology classes after all of that. But, uh... Trying to take any of his electives going yeah. forward. Yeah. No, I mean, I would personally be a bit, be a bit like, I, I don't really want to do anything to do with paleontology ever again. But, mm-hmm. like, you can tell, like, Johnson, while he did have the worst time ever, he does feel like he's, you know, come of age now. And he, he pre- you know, he, he seems to look, at, look back on this once he's back as a good thing, as an adventure, mm-hmm. even though it was, like, the worst time of his life. Uh, but then that's, that's where the story sort of drops off and we go into the, the many, many postscripts about how how this rivalry destroyed these two otherwise very, you know, important and great men who did do wonders for paleontology and wonders for science, but just spent all their time thinking about the other and whatnot. So that's, that's the basic plot. So yeah. So what, what made this book stand out for you as, you know, as your favorite or your choice for this episode over say Crichton's other books, which are more sort of, here is the, here's the thing that humanity has gone too far with. And this is the fallout. (laughs) You know, I think, um, Crichton's probably most famous for Jurassic Park, right? Uh, and well, thanks to the movie. Like, I, I <laughs> don't know how... I mean, it was, it was... It sold pretty good before then, but it was the movie that really sort of brought him onto the map. Yeah, and, like, I've read Jurassic Park. It's great. I like it a lot. But uh, I was like, I want to do Crichton. I should do Dinosaurs. There's the other oft-forgotten Dinosaur Crichton book. Let's do that one. Uh, I think I like, personally, that it is a little bit of a break from the usual here is a horror of science, beware humanity, but you still get a tinge of uh, kind of a cautionary tale baked in there. And the, I mean, for me personally, I read this book years ago, and it's still one of my favorites, um, mostly because of the relationship between Cope and Walsh and, like, watching these two 
obsessive men obsess over each other uh the way that one subsequent readings you kind of get to see the signs much earlier about how Mm -hmm. no matter what kind of front they're putting on in the moment ultimately no one else around them matters it's just each other and the bones and then also i think it the western genre has always been something of a a favorite usually more for movies for me than books but i think this one is fun because you get to see a lot of those kind of tropes and themes uh pop back up but with a little bit of that like Crichton flavor baked into it and uh, you know, I like getting a little bit of attention for his stuff that isn't the sci-fi because he does do some some fun works that are sort of adjacent to it uh, and this, this historical fiction one is as good as any. Yeah, no it's good. I mean the side of the Old West that it shows is because it's a different perspective on it because you're not seeing it from the perspective of the gunslinger of the guy mm-hmm. who moves on into town you know, defeats the bad guys and mills you on out again. It's from the perspective of the guy who's stuck in the town and also yeah. is largely powerless. Like, he does, you know, ki- you know, kill or wound or defeat several people by the end, partly out of luck, partly could have... Wiley Earp gives him some hints and stuff. But, like, he, it's really from a perspective of the, the everyman, or even not even the everyman, just the, the outsider, the guy who's used mm-hmm. to being a pampered Yale boy. So it, you do get much more of a sense of just how terrifying it must have been to live in these times where, yeah. you know, someone could pull a gun on you and shoot you dead and there's not really much you could do to stop it or anyone else can do to stop it, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a different perspective than you usually get in this setting. Um, and I think the, you know, Crichton's strength in, is his research and uh, it, it only serves him well here to be able to kind of explore a different angle uh, in how well he did his historical research. Again, I'm not a historian, so I can't speak too much to the accuracy or lack thereof of any particular section of the book. But to me, at least, it reads as fairly uh, well-constructed. Yeah, everything... I mean, I looked up a few of the events that he, he you know, mentioned in it, and they all seem to be... I mean, he, we were, I was probably looking at the, some of the same research things that he looked at, probably <laughs> not in the same depth, but, you know, we, we presumably looked at a few of the same things. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it does seem to be like he's he's stuck to certain events as well as he can. Like, he did mention in his postscript, he switched certain things around. Like, apparently the person who made a fake dinosaur bones to throw... Like, because at one point, Cope makes a saber-toothed cat dinosaur uh, to show what out of just bits of bones from other people, other dinosaurs, and then tried to throw off Marsh. And apparently that was actually the other way around, historically. Marsh did that mm. to try and throw off Cope. You know, just small details like that he messed around with. But yeah, he did say like, yeah, like they straight up, the people he hired, like he had people, they shot at each other. Like the people he hired would end up in fights with the people that Marsh hired. And it was kind of insane. It's it's, the way it was written was slightly interesting because it it switches back and forth between different, like some of it is like extracts from these people's journals. Mm-hmm. Some of it is just novelization, so it's like switches from first first person in the journal formats to first person and fake historical documents and stuff like the telegram that Cope sends home when several of his students were killed. It's like, dear Mr. and Mrs. Bibbly Bob, yes. I regret to inform you that your son was killed. Sorry, the end. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> damn, dude. All right, man. If that's how you want to have your bedside manner be. Yeah, he's put, like he put more into his like. His full name was like Professor William Fitzgerald Mortimer Jeffrey Cope. It's like mm-hmm. you put more words into signing your name than into telling them their son had died. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so yeah, these guys seem like the worst. Uh, but so yeah, but like I didn't realize like it, until I started looking up just how famous Deadwood became. Just you know, just for yeah. being known for being this incredibly lawless place. Yeah, I, that's something I didn't realize the first time I read this book. I didn't clock the name, and then since reading it 
you know, became more familiar with Deadwood. But yeah, he's pulling on like a real historical location. Um, and also maybe the one that is the most emblematic of the quote unquote Wild West. Uh, if you're looking for like one town to sum it all up, it's a good, it's a good one as any to point to. So it makes a lot of sense that he sent good old uh, Johnson there to face his luck or lack thereof. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, I was, I was also, I was glad that, I mean, obviously, I don't think Crichton's a racist because I've never heard of anything like that. I mean, I, you know, you, we get, we find out things about authors yeah. at the time that make us very sad. But as far as I'm aware, Crichton's not like prejudiced and stuff. So while he does use the outdated terminology of the era, he doesn't like try and demonize the Native Americans in the story. Like he does make it clear that, yeah, you're, you're in their home. This is their territory. Yeah. And the army is there trying to wipe them out. And like, uh... And there's also, like, the, you know, there, there are several times where the Native Americans are just, like, trying to mind their own damn business. Yeah. And these people are intruding on their camps and stuff. And there's, like, there's, 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 there's tribes and there's nations there that aren't even, like, hostile. Well, hostile is the wrong word because, you know, defensive right. of their, um, they, you know, some guy gets injured and they help them out along the way and stuff like that. So, like I said, while it was a bit awkward that he kept using the word Indian all the way through, I was at least glad that this wasn't, like, and they were total savages, and it's really awkward. It's like, oh. Yeah, I was so. a little worried about that when I picked this book, so I'm like, I don't remember it being exceptional in either direction, but uh, rereading it, I, I think, you know, he's not going out of his way to really share, I would say, like a Native American perspective on this Western period, hmm. but he's also not falling into the trap that a lot of Western media does, where... Uh, it's like, well, here's an easy villain for us to use, and that's just not fair or okay. right to the people who this actually affected during the time um so well which know. like we're talking about as if it's like well duh but like he did bear in mind he did write this in the 70s which is when yeah. they were making a lot of those westerns where you know the native americans were just the villains they were just the the uh savage menace so you know props yeah. to Crichton for being ahead of his time when he wrote this for just like yes this they, they made it dangerous to go into their territory because they'd been pushed to the edges of Mm -hmm. you know the livable the easy easily livable parts of the u.s and they were just like how about we stop so uh yeah so he like he didn't he neither demonized but he, you're absolutely right in that he didn't really give them give us their perspective that wasn't really what the book was about no uh, to be fair to him so i mean yeah like i said it's just i was relieved that it didn't get super awkward in that regard because you know while i said while they were uh, a danger they weren't uh, a villain of the story the villain was i mean Arguably, Marsh was kind of the villain of the story. Like, the other... Mm -hmm. Cope was kind of, like, borderline antagonist and protagonist because while he was a lot nicer to the main character, he was also the driving force behind getting so many people killed by yeah, Cope sending is kind them of back a... to go and get the cargo. <laughs> He's, like, a stock character in Crichton's book. He's the guy who keeps pushing no matter how many much danger there is present or how it may affect those around him there's a character like this in sphere there's characters like this in Jurassic park it's the it's the scientist who goes too far um so i yeah i agree i don't think he quite fits the villain role but it, the closer you look at cope's actions the more apparent it is like oh no a lot of this happens because cope didn't know how far was too far uh, and and it does paint um marsh as uh more villainous because he's kind of the antagonistic professor in terms of which professor our, our point of view character is sided with. Uh, but you can yep. easily see how the reverse could be true if we had stayed with Marsh and then had to experience uh, Cope dealing with them. Yeah, almost certainly. Like, I mean, 
I said, John, like, uh, Cope is, uh, while he is as paranoid as Marsh, he's at least better at keeping it contained, whereas, like, yeah. Marsh is just like, what, what? he's just constantly, he's feeling all his feelings at 11 all the way through, from the second you meet him to the second he leaves, he's just incredibly eccentric, whilst Cope is, like, quiet and reserved until you piss him off. Like, at one point, Marsh bribes a sheriff to try to arrest Cope for untrumped-up murder charges of his own father. Mm-hmm. And Cope beats the piss out of him. Like, Cope lose. Like, so Cope is the scary person that you don't, like, <laughs> seems very normal until you get yeah. on his bad side, and then he goes fucking apeshit. Like, Cope uh, is constantly on the precipice of jumping into a fight with someone. Every Every interaction in this book he has with someone who is not in his group is... And then we all had to hold Cope back to keep him from starting yes. to punch this man he was talking to. <laughs> and again, this is a professor at a prestigious a university. <laughs> a paleontology. He's a dino and he's ready man. To throw, yeah, and he's ready to throw fists at the any time anyone pisses him off. Yeah. It's, it's, freak, it's like every other page, Cope is about to fight somebody. And then every ten yeah. pages or so, he actually does. Just, yeah. He's either beating you know, someone up, threatening to beat someone off, or talking about how civilized he is compared to Marsh. So. Yeah. The irony so, yeah, is lost on him. <laughs> well, yeah, and the sort of the irony in general that these these two are the Easterners, you know, who are mm-hmm. supposedly the civilized ones coming to the Wild West, whereas and just being fucking vicious bastards the entire time. Yeah, but but it's like there's no consequences for any of it. Like uh, Johnson kills several people. Like Cope gets several people killed. Marsh attempts murder or pulls a gun on this kid multiple times, and they get back to the to the East Coast or Philadelphia at least. Or where's Yale? Is that uh, uh, it's in New Jersey, so it would have probably so, passed. Oh, through. that explains a lot. Okay, um, <laughs> American joke, but yeah, they get back to New Jersey, and like it's never really mentioned. Again. Like they, they presumably all go back to their their line. It's like, well, nothing that happened in the West seems to have counted. You know, he doesn't yeah. when when Johnson doesn't go to meet Marsh. He's not like, hey, you know, you put a gun in my face and threatened to shoot me. You want to talk to the police about that? Maybe like, is yeah. that loud? But no, what it just never comes up again. The West stays in the West. It's the lawless place. But of course, the, the shitty bully, despite despite Johnson rocking up, he's come back, he's still got his piece on, he's still got his six shooters strapped to his side, he's in his dusty yep. western clothes, he's got this scar across his face where he got hit in the mouth with a fucking tomahawk. And he tries to weasel out of the bet at the end, he's just like, ah, well, <laughs> technic- actually, technically, I said you had to go there with Marsh, not uh, Cope. And it was like, yeah, he's like, how do you think this is going to work out for you now? <laughs> now that I've so, become yeah, a hardened man I'm... of Deadwood, you really want to play yeah. this game with me? Yeah, Gale picks him up boy. like one-handed. It's like, yo, man, I took photographers of like serial killers. You want to fuck with me? <laughs> but yes, yeah. yeah, so it is like still as Crichton books go, ridiculously light-hearted. Like I know a lot. It's yeah. like a really traumatic time, and a lot of people get killed. But it's not like, hey, if we fuck this up, the whole world is going to end. It's more like. If we fuck this up, I don't get my bones. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, I think compared to a lot of his other books, this one's, I think, lighter on some of the more philosophical elements that tend to add a little bit of weight to the other stories. Like, Jurassic Park yeah. is relatively contained. The dinosaurs are on the island, and they're going to be on the island. Like, at the end of the day, that's not a world-ending event, but they do tend to wax philosophically a bit more about having tampered with playing god and tampered with the fabric yeah. of life and reality and things uh, and sphere similarly like they don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean they don't know what the sphere they found is could it be an alien ship could it be time travel who knows and everyone who sees it kind of like goes crazy you get a lot more going on with like 
questioning the fabric of reality. And this is kind of just a an adventure at the end of the day. Uh, this story is a little bit, you know, it ruminates for some time about obsession and what, you know, the, the value of um, being so driven to accomplish something or to protect what are functionally, you know, worthless rocks even if they have scientific value uh but at the end of the day like the the main thrust of the story is let's go on this wild adventure that happens to be motivated by bones uh more so than let's wax philosophical about the nature of reality and how space works yeah how like yeah it's more like this is what happened try and learn from it than this is what could happen don't do it (laughs) yes exactly so i've only because i've only read the two books by Crichton and Mm -hmm. like checked out the others so i don't know if like he does dip into just the adventure more often, but like I said, this was the first one that I've read personally that was formatted this way, and so like I enjoyed it a lot. I thought this was, this oh, was not that I didn't enjoy Jurassic Park or the Andromeda Strain. <laughs> it was just that it was just nice to take a break from the stress of it because obviously everyone's under yes. so much pressure, and whether it's trying to find a cure for this space virus or trying to stop the dinosaurs from escaping and eating everyone. Yeah, yeah I think Crichton's sci-fi is a lot heavier than uh, he's he's done books across a couple different genres um but usually they do skew more in the adventure or thriller direction uh and i think that they're actually better access points to him as a writer than some of his more well-known works are because they tend to be the heavier sci-fi pieces where you get a lot more technical knowledge that he's he's kind of flexing and i think Crichton overall does a pretty good job of balancing like hard sci-fi uh technical explanations where needed and the more fantastical elements having looser explanations uh you see it a lot more in jurassic park and like prey in particular um but here you know there's not too much knowledge being shared that isn't something that i most american public education systems would at least have glossed over briefly um you get a lot more opportunities to explore the grander story more so than get caught up in the minutiae of any one particular process and i think that, that makes a more accessible book overall uh and an, an enjoyable ride again i love the sci-fi i'm a huge Creighton fan um oh, but i do think if i was trying to get someone into his books dragon teeth might be where i'd tell them to start just because i do think it's a better entry point into his writing uh, you get a taste of his style but you don't have to get too into the weeds yeah no i i feel that yeah I and mean, it may not be like the most typical of his work but it is mm-hmm. definitely an excellent starting point just if you want to get to know how he writes and sort of yeah. the voice that he gives his characters because mm-hmm. he's very good at getting you invested in whether it's you know you know viruses dinosaurs or just getting <laughs> home right. and so like i was just get i was getting so frustrated the same way that johnson was getting frustrated by the end of it and it's just like can this poor kid catch a break and then when his <laughs> girlfriend looks like she's selling off his bones i was just oh my like God. i was having heart palpitations <laughs> like he cannot he spent six months getting home it's like he can't get this far and then lose it all you know yes yeah and then like he when he and then he's, it was such an anti-climax that particular subplot because he gets he finally gets out of jail and he goes and he's like, what have you done with my bones? And she's like, nothing. No one wanted them. They're no bones. bones. <laughs> like, yeah. No one gives a shit about this because we don't have an understanding of paleontology yet. Like um, <laughs> amongst the general public. Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of dino like, bone collectors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone uh, in Deadwood just assumes he has some sort of treasure in the boxes and not actual bones. They're like, you care so much, but there's no way anyone would care that much about a box of bones. And he's like, I don't know how to explain to you that I do. These are deeply important to me. This is a combination of like my 
own like sunk cost fallacy and professional pl- pride in my new interest in paleontology. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he could probably have saved time and lives if he just had a look at my bones day. <laughs> like, takes all his <laughs> crates to the center of Deadwood, just opens them all and say, behold, my bones, my fossils. <laughs> See how it's not gold, you idiots. Yes. Look with your eyes. These are literally just rocks. These are bones. Please They're don't touch calcified. them. But like... Yeah. Very I, delicate. Like he, Some it, of them are covered in rice. All that good stuff. Exactly. I was about to mention the rice because they discovered like <laughs> the first instance of like packing peanuts. I think they were yeah. kept breaking these bones, so they mulched all this this rice and like made plaster casts to keep the bones in. Yeah. But, like, you got to think about how many million multi million year old fossils were destroyed back in the day just because it was guys with like nineteenth cent early nineteenth century equipment digging them up. And lowering them down with like wooden winches and just dropping them. It's like, obviously, you can't think about paleontology in a sort of, well, in a hundred years we'll have better equipment, so let's leave it for them. Like, you can't expect people of the era to think like that, but right. you also have to think about what we lost because of that. Like, because the same sort of thing occurred with like Egyptian archaeology, where they were just burning mummies because they had too many of them at one point. Or, the 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 urban myth i believe it's an urban myth it might be real but like is that at one point they were eating the mummies <laughs> like just because like back in the day oh they, like they, they were melting down the gold that was in the pharaoh's tomb just for its gold value and it's like you know i know you got, <laughs> you can't expect people to leave pyramid clothes pyramids closed for like another 50 years 100 years just co- to wait until we have more respect for the past but it also i also think about what we lost in that era you know mm-hmm but yeah, just a I think you can tell there, from that section, the section of the book where they are on the dig, uh, Crichton does a little bit of his Crichton thing and flexes a little bit about the different processes at that time of paleontology. Uh, a, a favorite moment of his is to take a detour chapter for like three pages where he'll just talk about like a scientific process for a while. And I always kind of find it endearing, but <laughs> it, yeah. it is easier to get through in this book than in others. Um, but he does, he, he mentions, like, you can kind of see the beginning of uh, processes that are still used in archaeology today, but, like, clearly are in their very early stages of uh, trying to date things based on what strata they're found in. There's a few points where Cope makes it a, a point to ask, like, where in the rock formation did you find this? And the different ways of chiseling things out. It's not quite as finely tuned as it would be today, but, you know, they're not smacking the rock with hammers. So there is some, yeah. like, beginnings of proper uh paleontology and uh, archaeology happening but you can tell that it's still very early days there's still a lot of like un- lack of refinement to parts of the process and i think that's very neat yeah. to to go back to I-, I took a couple um anthropology and archaeology classes in college this is a, this sh- shocking to everyone listening i have a slight interest in, <laughs> in all of this uh <laughs> maybe there's a theme there um <laughs> But yeah, these are these are processes that uh, have been refined over time and now have reached a point where, you know, they're, they're still being refined as we go. We still get new techniques and new technologies ever. Science and progress marches forward. Um, but it, it, yes, it was no, neat I, to kind of see where that, that point of origin was in here. Yeah. I imagine another hundred years when we are digging up uh, dinosaur bones entirely safely and perfectly with the, like, the <laughs> nanobots that Crichton said not to invent, yes. that they will look back on our archaeologists and go, oh god, they were still <laughs> digging them up with tools, even if they were like micro-tools. It's like, yeah, ah. They, they so, were brushing dust away with a brush. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, just they lasering were putting it these off. things up in museums where there's air instead of making 3D renderings <laughs> under the ground. Like, I don't know. Actually, they made that, they made a reference to that in the actual the Jurassic Park movie, didn't they? Because they, um... In the beginning, they just took like an X-ray of the ground. They just said, "Pretty soon, we won't even have to dig them up." 
uh, I think we're still sort of, yes, we could do that. It's just more fun this way, stage of human development. Yeah, I think we're still figuring it out. Uh, I don't know if we've quite hacked perfectly x-raying under the ground quite yet. We'll get there. But like I said, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, technology will probably progress to a point where, I mean, obviously, because this, this always happens. Like every every couple of like technological breakthroughs, we look at what we used to do and thinking, ugh. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So, you know, paleontology, medical, everything will all be. They'll be looking at what we did to ourselves back in this era with the same <laughs> sort of horror as I was just looking back at 19th century. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, then, any other any other things you want to bring up about this book? Anything that resonated with you? Ooh, you know, I think just sort of like closing thoughts on it because I'm still in the headspace of is this a movie shock episode? No, we read something, we didn't watch it. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Western genre kind of has some problems baked into it and a, a particularly around how um usual western stories paint native americans uh and i while i think this book does dodge a lot of that it, there are still elements of like it's not really their story being told so um yeah. i don't want to laud it as a perfect western but i do think that if you're looking for a little taste of the genre um while still getting a little bit of like your historical fiction fix and you want an introduction to Crichton's writing this is a great place to start and I particularly love the first half of the book where you do get a lot of Cope and uh Marsh kind of just yes on each other's it tails I think that's yeah the, the strongest yeah, they, point of the book <laughs> yeah they disappear for like the last third or so, well mm -hmm. a, a good chunk of the second half of the book but yes the the real life people and just the unbelievable shenanigans they got into facing off against each other is is definitely definitely a, a big selling point of this book yeah I, I think that those parts are so they're well written i think Crichton really you know did his research you get the sense that like he understands who these characters are that he's trying to construct and what he's trying to do with them um the way that they play off of each other even when they're not in the same location i think is just endlessly entertaining to read and when they pop back up again very briefly at the end uh, as, as uh we get the return to philadelphia which go birds um <laughs> i do with the rep from philly we love it i was reading the first part of this book on a train ride and i was like i forgot that the main character is from my hometown hell yeah and then i quickly was like oh no he's gonna go through so much shit uh <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny when when Marsh finds out that uh, Johnson's from Philadelphia, he gets really like super intensely, uh, almost triggered by it because that's apparently yeah. where Cope comes from. Yeah, Cope uh, is a uh, Quaker, <clears throat> which is one of uh, the groups that's most famously uh, based in Philly, or if not My based in Philly, but very prominent. Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. William I mean, Penn I, was a I, Quaker. I, Okay, but like I didn't. Um, I realized at first that this was building towards Cope being from Philly. I thought that just like maybe people from New Jer Jersey just absolutely hated Philadelphia. Like I thought this was just <laughs> just the fact that he was from Philadelphia was enough to really upset this guy. Yeah, you know, you get to see kind of uh, Marsh's beginning of distrust towards uh, not Jonathan Johnson. Johnson. I don't know why that that is sticking in my brain the way it is. I've read this book several times now. Have you read it's Dracula recently? Because Jonathan's in that, maybe? You know, Red has been doing Dracula reading streams. That might be why it's on the brain. But you get to kind of watch in the very beginning of the book before he gets ousted from the first expedition. The uh, slow process of Walsh turning on him and being like, all the pieces are putting together. Mysterious guy from Philadelphia. His parents didn't come to see him off. So, you know, I didn't get to schmooze with the wealthy. Maybe 
maybe they, they're not who he says he is, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then over the course of the, the relatively short travel period, you get to see uh, Johnson unaware <laughs> that he is being suspected. And Walsh just eventually leading him from dead. Um, when you say Walsh, I, do you mean Marsh? Marsh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Wow, good. names was... are not going well today. <laughs> he, his full name is insane. It's like he's got one of those ye oldie times names. Oh, on. of course. Um, I have to look it up because I couldn't. I couldn't even say it, so I didn't even bother. Uh, Might have tabbed it out. Get the, give me the wiki back up. When I first started reading this book, my physical copy, I was tabbing out things of interest, and then you could see exactly where I stopped being able to write on the train as I was reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. It's a little something for the patrons watching. Uh, where is he? Okay, so uh, Cope is Edward Drinker Cope, and Marsh is. Orthoninel Charles Marsh, like O T H N I E L. So it's like what? what? And he's got that fucking ye old timey beard that sort of starts oh, of off course. at the of sides course. of his cheeks and just works outwards until it's like a fucking broom <laughs> on his on his face. It's like these guys are like the epitome of the nineteenth century West, you know? Because oh, yeah. uh, Cope's got that 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 uh, Mark Twain mustache and the Van Dyke <laughs> sort of thing going on. Ah, oh, it's glorious. But yeah, it's beautiful. So yeah, I think those are the. I think more of them would have been my only notes if yeah. somehow I went back in time to and spoke to the late Michael Crichton and said, "Hey, yeah. let's 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 keep those guys in the entire story." Um, I'd be curious if like this was because this wasn't published by Crichton originally. This was pu- published posthumously. I wonder if there would have been subsequent drafts where maybe in the latter half there was more uh, Marsh and Cope kind of point. woven back in. Um, because this does feel fairly complete, but there are points where I'm like, it just feels like there's some narrative lines that kind of trickle off in a way that says very, like, second or third draft to me. Um, but, you know, it's one of those great things. Where I'm like, I'm never really going to know the answer to that question. We can't ask Crichton yeah. anymore. Um, but it, it, it does make me curious if maybe that was something that was planned. Yeah, would be something to ask him if we could go back in time to yes. <laughs> what I discovered. Like, I learned while I was watch- what I was researching for this book. Man, Michael Crichton was a fucking look- good-looking motherfucker when he was young. I found oh, a yeah, his of author photo in- on the back? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like, hello, Look Daddy. at those arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at, yeah. I was like, fucking hell, I didn't know this guy was... Ha- yeah, Michael Crichton. I, Crichton, my Good be. Lord. <laughs> I see why you had such a prolific like, career in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Because I, I only saw the photos of him, like, in his in later life. I didn't realize he yeah. was a fucking stud when he was younger. So, nah, yeah, Sherry's a lucky woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was good. It was good to revisit his work again because I'm always looking for chances to redeem myself for calling him Michael Crichton ah, all the way through my Jurassic mistake. Park review back in the day. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I, it never occurred to me to look up how you pronounce it. It looks to a dyslexic eye like Crichton. So yeah, most people were nice about it, but it was probably the most recurring comment in my, Ooh. you know, on that video. Uh, just like, who the fuck is Michael Crichton? <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure he appreciates the redemption now uh, on this podcast. Yeah. Indeed, this is this will hopefully the third and final time I can come back to his work just to say sorry I said your name wrong, buddy. <laughs> you can rest in peace now. Yes. Cool beans. All right, yeah. So uh, let me get my outro sorted because I want to spend my first time showing it off. Sure. Uh, thank you for joining my us. Feet. My. Sorry. Hmm? Oh, there's a kitty. Sorry, my you have cat a kitty cameo. Yeah, my cat started biting my feet. Hold on, Ziggy, come here. Say hi to the people. <laughs> that is. That is like a look behind the curtain for everyone. That's the number one thing that uh, Sophia has to edit out. <gasps> Kitty! So, like, none of y'all can see this if you're just listening to this podcast, but my patrons, so I was going to mention in a moment. <gasps> oh, they are seeing this most beautiful little kitty on the screen. Hey, you want to say hi, Ziggy, or are you just going to sit there and accept? 
that this is your life now. Oh, okay. I've got a little voidling on the screen now. <laughs> this is going to mean nothing to everyone listening to this on the <laughs> in the audio format. But I think we might have caught one of the meows on, on Mike before the protest yeah. from when she was biting my feet. Thanks for oh, that, yeah. Ziggy. Good go, contribution. Go elsewhere. But yeah, the number one thing that Sophia has to edit out when she's editing Lost in Adaptation is to Terry just deciding <laughs> to attack my ankles. <laughs> like, you'll see it's a lot in the bloopers if you watch to the end. Yes. But, yeah, just me going, and blah, blah, blah. Ow, so Terry, stop it. We talked about this. A lot of this. good cat content coming out of this, uh, this corner of the channel. <laughs> the, everyone you work with, really, it's, very, it's a very cat-centric professional you know, environment. Yeah, this was a thing that I, we were talking about at VidCon briefly, but a lot of YouTubers and uh, associated creators have cats. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a theory in there somewhere, but right now all I know is everyone I work with, <laughs> including myself, has cats. <laughs> has cats, yep. Uh, what's uh, Tim's cat's name? Uh, oh, Momo. Momo, yes, so cute. Yeah, but so we've got Momo, so Terry, Wisp, Ziggy, uh, Cleo. Cleo, yes. The other cat fighting for dominance, the most popular cat. <laughs> Ziggy, stop! Sorry, uh, the Alexa in my studio is c- c- code named Ziggy. So every time I talk to her cat. <laughs> No, Ziggy, not you, sweetie. No, it's okay. Aww. I'm always polite to my Alexas because when the robot uprising comes, I don't want oh, to be course. the first. Yeah. I want them to speak Michael for me. Crichton taught me, just be respectful. <laughs> He's been trying Ziggy, to warn please. us. Ziggy, please. Ziggy, I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Good? Good. Okay, this is, this is a great pilot. <laughs> Hit me with your outro, Dom. What you got? Okay. Thank you for joining us, my beautiful listeners. If you would like to enjoy this or future episodes of the pod with the addition of mine and my guests' stunning faces, the video version with extra bonus content, which we're just about to record, is going to be available on my Patreon page. A very big thank you to my special guest, Sophia Ricciardi, and uh, thank you for being patient with me all the times I sh- shouted you out in my credits with the ro- like mispronouncing <laughs> your surname wildly um, it's the it's the michael Crichton treatment i'll take it it's a exactly, it's good yeah, company I to just, be in <laughs> it's i think it's just my thing is i just always mispronounce things i say this in my show over and over it's like guys i'm trying but like there's just something in my dyslexic brain that just says no you're just going to say this phonetically in no other way i've never had a good time reading out the discord names on the overly sarcastic podcast i feel your pain it's okay <laughs> but once Sophia has shown me how to do show notes, I will add links to all of her many podcasts and works into cool. the show notes. And yeah, hopefully you guys will join us next time. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. 